is four and thinks he is 40, um, about this whole concept of authority and who is in charge, and that he is not in charge, that mommy and daddy are in charge, and that he needs to line up under our authority. And so he doesn't quite get the whole concept yet, and we're trying to reinforce that lesson with him. But uh, the other day he comes out with this. He goes, Mommy, yes, Nathan. So in our house, Daddy is the king, and Mommy is the queen, and we are the princes and princesses, right? And Karen thought about that. She goes, yeah, that's, that's pretty much right. And so... Uh, so we have to obey you and mommy everywhere, right, Daddy? Right. Well, Karen and I thought, well, that's pretty good. That's progress. At least he's starting to get the concept at least that he is not the king in our house, right? Um, and it's, you know, I mean, all of our kids are, are the type of kids anyway for whom Dobson wrote that book, you know, The Strong-Willed Child. Uh, we, by the way, have no idea where this comes from. <laughs> Some of you have met Karen and I, um, but uh, couldn't have come from either of us. So we're feeling pretty proud of ourselves as parents uh, right up until this conversation a little bit later that same day. Karen goes into Nate's room, and he's got toys from one end to the other, and she says, Nate, I want you to clean up your room. And he goes, Mommy, it's such a mess. It will take a long time. And she says, I know, but I've, I've asked your sister, uh, Sarah, to come help you. And he goes, okay, well, that's pretty good. And, um, and so then Sarah goes in and he says, all right, Sarah, mom says for you to help me clean my room. And you have to do what I say because I'm the king of this house. I mean, I'm the king of this room. <laughs> okay, and still not quite there yet, but he's four. We've got time, right? He's... He's, he's not totally clear on this whole issue of who is in charge here, right? But, you know, that makes him a pretty good American. After all, I mean, we, we fought a war over a three-cent tax on tea, amen? Uh, we don't like authority too well uh, as Americans. Uh, in fact, as people, we don't like authority real well. And we don't like to have to obey what other people tell us to do. But you know what? Everybody lives under authority in some form or fashion. Whether you're the, um, whether you're the father, whether you're the mother, whether you're the child, whether you're the president of the United States, everybody lives under authority. And this whole issue of authority comes up a lot for Jesus. Because people want to know, where does your authority come from, Jesus? Uh, we're in Jesus last week here in the Gospel of Mark. These last uh, several chapters covered Jesus last week. Uh, these, are long, um, these are long books that all spend a lot of time on these last few days of Jesus' life. It's a very compressed account. Of about three years of ministry, you get just about 43 days between all of the gospel accounts. And this, uh, this incident that we're going to look at today takes place on what is probably the Wednesday of Jesus last week before the crucifixion. So he's got about two days before the religious leaders' plot comes to fruition. 
And a few of them uh, come to Jesus, and they're going to question his authority, because Jesus claims to be king. And within the context of the Jewish nation, there is no one at this time, because at this time there is no Davidic king, there is no one above the high priest. And yet Jesus has just gone in, as we saw last week, and knocked over a bunch of tables, driven out the money changers and the people who were selling sacrificial animals. He has stopped people from using the, the court of the Gentiles as a thoroughfare and a market. And this is something the priests were allowing to be done. And so by putting a stop to it, Jesus is claiming a higher authority than the highest authority within the Jewish nation. And so some people naturally want to know where he gets off, and they come to ask him about it. So if you, um, if you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples have been going in and out of the city. And they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Uh, the, the chief priests are the... the the folks who are probably part of the, the high priestly clan, um, they would be the highest religious authority in the nation. They are the people to whom even the Romans granted a measure of rule over the nation. The elders are the uh, leaders of each of the clans and tribes within Israel. The men who are designated as authorities and leaders. And the teachers of the law are these appointed rabbis, you know, the official guys who held position and status in the nation. And they come to Jesus, and they are asking, well, by what authority are you doing these things? And these things refers to this whole incident with the temple and the whip the previous day. Where do you get off, Jesus, doing this stuff? that you've just been doing. And they have two questions that they ask. First, what is the nature of your authority? Where are your credentials, Jesus? These are the men of position. These are the, the positional leaders. And Jesus is an unemployed rabbi who is wearing all of the clothes that he owns, who comes from a backwater town with no formal training, He's been educated at the synagogue, but he's not been to seminary or the equivalent in their day. His birth occurred under circumstances that are 
at least questionable. You know, if you believe the mother on that whole miraculous virgin birth thing, maybe okay. But, you know, come on. If you're looking at it from maybe another perspective, you're thinking, you know, you're the illegitimate son of a carpenter from nowhere. Where are your credentials? I'm the chief priest. I'm a religious scholar. I'm one of the elders of the people. Who do you think you are? What is the nature of your authority, Jesus? These are the cream of the Jewish nation. They are men of piety and power and position and authority. And they come to Jesus and they say, By what authority are you doing these things? Where are your credentials? What certifies you and authorizes you to do this? And then they ask the second question, which is this. Who gave you authority to do this? Who authorized you to go into the temple and do what you did yesterday? We're the ones in power, not you. And if you're going to do something in the temple, you need to go through us. So who gave you the right to do what you've just done? Jesus knows the rabbinic tradition, and so he does what he often does, which is answer a question with a question. You know, ladies, if your husband does that, he's buying time, so he can think of an answer, okay? <laughs> but, you know, did you, did you track mud into the house? This house? <laughs> okay. Uh, but Jesus is not buying time. He is... Um, what he's doing is engaging them on a level that they understand. He's answering their question with a question. And the question he asks is real simple. He says, John's baptism, was it from heaven? That is, did it come from God? Was John authorized by God? Or did his authority come from men? In other words, Jesus is doing a couple things. Number one, he is identifying his ministry with John's. That there's no competition between what John did and what I'm doing. He is also doing this. He is pointing out that authority doesn't necessarily derive from position. Because who was John? He was a nobody from nowhere who didn't have any money, who lived on locusts and wild honey and went around in a camel skin coat. Where did John get his authority from? Directly from God. Because he was a prophet. And Jesus is trying to connect himself to John so that they understand the same thing is true in my case. That there is a source of authority outside of y'all. And it's the highest one around. It's directly from God. But see, the religious leaders didn't think that John actually was a prophet. They didn't dare admit that publicly because everybody in the nation thought that he was. And so Jesus has asked this question purposely to put them also on the horns of this dilemma. Because if they say, and, which, and this is all happening in public, this is in the temple courts. This is not happening in a corner somewhere. If they say, well, his authority came from God, then Jesus will say, then how come you didn't follow John? 
But if they say, well, it was just simply a humanly derived phenomenon. John claimed authority he did not possess. He was not really a prophet. Then they would lose face in front of all of the people who are watching this. And in the Eastern culture, the worst thing that can possibly happen is that you be publicly shamed. And they're not willing to... To do, to do that. They're not willing to be publicly shamed, and they're not willing to affirm that John was a true prophet. So they go, well, what are we going to say? So they say, well, we don't know. And Jesus is like, well, fine. You didn't answer my question. I'm not going to answer yours. But if you look cl- closely at the text next, Jesus, you'll see that Jesus does give an answer. It's just veiled uh, so that they don't quite get it. Look at the text here. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, and some they beat, and others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, "'They will respect my son.'" But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, and so they left him and went away. Now, the symbols in this parable, if you understand it rightly, are pretty clear. The vineyard is Israel. The landowner is God. And the servants that God sends are the prophets. Who are the tenants? They're the religious leaders. And they are the people, the leaders of the nation, who time after time after time after time failed to give God the honor that he was due as the landowner. This would be a very common situation, agricultural situation in Israel. What they would do would be, um, uh, you know, very commonly you'd, you'd rent out land for a share of the crops. You, know, you were a share cropping farmer, and you got to keep most of them, and the landowner got a share also. And it worked out for both sides. But it was dependent on the landowner's goodwill because he owned the land. And you needed to live up to your end of the bargain and give the owner a share of the crops. God is the landowner here. And so he sends to ask for his share. Are you going to honor me with my vineyard, with my people, the nation of Israel? 
And time after time, after time, after time, after time, the leaders of the nation didn't. If you look at your history of Israel, you see that the elders of the people, when the nation was in the wilderness, led rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion against Moses. Even Aaron and Miriam got, you know, Moses' brother and sister got into the act at points. With Aaron, the, the chief priest, leading them in golden calf worship, and then the two of them going together and saying, has God spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? You've got the whole Dathan and Abiram incident uh, that God solves by having the ground open up and swallow them, which is, I'm guessing, a bad way to go out. Uh, But you've got Elijah fleeing for his life from Jezebel even after his great victory at Mount Carmel because Jezebel has threatened his life and she has already killed hundreds of the Lord's prophets. You've got uh, Ahab imprisoning Micaiah because, remember that story? Micaiah would be a great name for a kid, by the way. The one who stood against all of the wickedness in his nation. And Ahab has him in prison because he never says anything good about me, only bad. And you go, you know, that might be a clue. You need to <laughs> change around what you're doing, bud. But Ahab has him in prison. Uh, Isaiah, according to, according to historical record, was sawn in half vertically. Down the middle, this way. Okay? Jeremiah was thrown into a pit and abused and exiled and mistreated. Being a prophet of God was often a pretty rough gig. And Jesus is saying in this parable that God sent you prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And now he has sent his son. Who's the son? Jesus. Thinking, Finally, the nation will give me the honor I am due because I am sending my beloved son. But instead of that, these tenants, these religious leaders, think to themselves, there's only one barrier between us and sole power over the nation, and it's this guy. Because within Israel at that time, you had this really unusual law regarding property. That if the last surviving heir of a piece of property died, his other, the other family members had only a limited window to claim it as theirs. Otherwise, it went to whoever planted their flag first. And so when the sun shows up, they think to themselves, oh, the father must be dead. And the boy is coming to claim his inheritance under the law. And that's why he's here. If we bump him off, then it becomes ours exclusively. And so they kill him and they pitch him out of the vineyard. The idea is they leave his body to rot like a common criminal. Is that about to happen? 
Yes. And the parable was told to reveal truth to those who had ears to hear and to conceal it from those who didn't. But this time, uniquely in Mark's gospel, they understand a little bit of what's going on here. And they understand it, maybe not the whole meaning of the whole thing, but they get it enough to know that they're being denounced. (laughs) And they look for a way to arrest Jesus because their attitude is, how dare you talk to me this way? Who do you think you are? You clod kicking hillbilly from Nazareth. What gives with you? Don't you know who we are? We are the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law of the nation of Israel called by God to teach the law and enforce it throughout the whole nation. And you are some dude from Nazareth, the illegitimate son of a carpenter. Where do you get off, Jesus? And they're looking for a way to arrest him. And they can't figure out how to do it in public. So later in the week, they're going to figure out a way to do it in private at night when nobody's around. But Jesus says this also. He says, have you not read this scripture? This is Psalm 118. This is part of the Psalms of Ascents that the the entire nation would have sung traditionally during the week of Passover, which is the week that Jesus is in. And so he says, have you not read? Of course they've read. They probably sang that day. The stone the builders rejected. Who are the builders? These leaders. Has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, you're about to see this scripture fulfilled. The one that all of you reject, me, is going to become the head of the building. The most important stone in it, the king. And they are looking for a way to arrest him without causing a riot. And the plot is on, full steam, to get rid of Jesus. Most of us, you know, are a pretty independent bunch, aren't we? We don't like anybody telling us what to do. Uh, 234 years ago, uh, we wrote a letter to King George to tell him what he could do with his crown and throne. Called it the Declaration of Independence, right? And it took us a while to live up to our ideals that were expressed in that document. But we are a nation that is based on the idea of freedom for all within it. Freedom from overly uh, significant amounts of government control, freedom from interference with one, by, uh, by one another. Uh, we get to do what we want. You know, or as David Crosby says, the great thing about America is that in America you can let your freak flag fly. Okay? You can be as wild and crazy as you want to be, right? And we are an independent bunch, and a lot of us tend to import that same idea directly into our spiritual life also. And we don't want to have people, or even God sometimes, in authority over us. 
it might be healthy for a citizen to say to their government, don't tread on me, as that old flag says, right? Because there ought to be limits to governmental power. But it's deadly for you and me as Christians to say the same thing to God. At the center of the Christian faith is the Father, the Creator, the one who loves us, but also the judge who has established his holy law and rule and expects us, demands us to obey and submit and follow his authority. He will not bow before us. He will not sit second place. He says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God, and there is no idol you can set up in place of him, even if that idol is yourself and your own desires. He will not be in second place. And the question that, that is significant out of this text is, in the presence of divine authority, will you bow before him, the king? Or will you continue to assert your own authority and your own right to do what you want? And Christians do it and non-Christians do it. You know, a lot of Christians do this. I will pick and choose the parts of the Bible that I want to obey. And I will underline and highlight the portions that I like and I will ignore and forget about the portions that I do not, right? Uh, last summer, we had, a, had a, a series in Sunday school called Cat and Dog Theology, and it's based on this idea, okay? Uh, a dog says, you love me, feed me, vaccinate me, house me, and pet me and love me. You must be God. A cat says, you love me, feed me, vaccinate me, pet me, and house me. I must be God. <laughs> okay. And a lot of people have, they're either dogs or cats when it comes to their relationship with God. And they see, they can respond to God this way. Hey, you have loved me and given your son for me and provided for me, and given me your Holy Spirit, and given me a place in your family and a home in heaven, I must be God. They're a cat. Or a person who looks at the same set of circumstances and blessings and says, God, because of everything you have done for me, you must be God, and I must obey you and follow you. This issue of authority is not one we can escape from. If Jesus is correct that he is the Son whom the Father sent. He is the one to whom we all owe honor and power and authority to be given to him over not only the world, but our lives personally. Uh, we can't pick and choose. We can't say, well, I'll obey God here, but not here. I'll obey him there, but not here. And in this, but not that. His authority is either total or not at all. And we have to choose which we're going to do. Um, so, which one are you? Are you a cat? Are you a dog? Do you look at God's blessings as your rightful due because you are the center of the universe? 
Or do you look at God's blessings as blessings because God is the center of the universe? And are you going to obey the king who came to receive the honor the Father is due? Or are you going to appoint yourself leader of your life? Are you hoping to please God by doing what pleases Him and trying to do that? Are you hoping to please God by hoping that it's okay to obey Him in some ways and disobey Him in others? Which are you going to do? All right, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, 